you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We'll be focusing this morning on verses 5 through 11, and really even more specifically on verses 5 through 8, but you'll want to have Philippians 2, 1 through 11 there in front of you. And it's also printed on the order of service for you. Goats. Goats have a negative association in the Scriptures. All right? Think about Jesus' illustration in Matthew 25 of the coming separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep being those who follow Him and the goats being those who are not His people. But in the present day, the word goat has taken on new meaning, hasn't it? It's used as an abbreviation for what? Greatest of all time, and particularly in debates over athletes. Who is the greatest athlete in such and such a sport? Well, I heard a story about a preacher who ran into a bit of confusion on a sports call-in show because on this call-in show they were talking about his greatest player being, or his, his favorite player rather, being the GOAT or being one of the GOATs. And he's thinking Matthew 25 GOAT. And he's just having none of this. How can you talk about so-and-so in this, in this way? There was confusion. There was misunderstanding there. One of the ongoing debates in this whole GOAT discussion is Michael or LeBron? Who's the greatest of all time? Oftentimes, not exclusively, this falls along generational divides. So if you're my age or older, maybe a little younger, you probably lean towards Michael. If you follow basketball and you're, you're younger, you probably lean towards LeBron just because of exposure and so forth. But regardless, let's take for a moment that Michael Jordan is among the, the greatest basketball players of all time. Do you know what Michael Jordan's career shooting percentage was? So, how often the basketball went in each time he shot over the course of his professional career? His career shooting percentage was 49.7%. You know what that means? He missed more than he made over the entire course of his career. And he is yet still considered one of the greatest basketball players of all time. This reminds us of that common phrase. To err is... To err, to make a mistake, is human. But I think what the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 2, is that true humanity is not summed up in that phrase, 
to err is human. Rather, he gives a vastly different picture of what it means to be truly human as he points to the Lord Jesus Christ who took on humanity sinlessly, perfectly. Let's hear what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we come to these familiar words, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that You have for us in these verses this morning. Father, we commit this time to You. We pray that You would be glorified first and foremost in our consideration and in our response. Father, we pray that we would be changed, that we would be redirected, that we would be confronted by our sin. We pray, Father, that You would use Your Word to great effect in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we consider what Paul writes here, and particularly, again, in verses 5-8, through what Paul is encouraging, is appealing to the Philippians to do, is to have Christ's perspective. To have Christ's perspective. And in order for us to see how it is that he appeals to them to adopt Christ's perspective, especially as it relates to who they are and their lives, there are three things for us to observe. The first is Paul's command. This command to have this mind or have this perspective. But secondly, we need to see what Paul says about Jesus' divinity. Jesus' divinity. And then thirdly, what Paul says about Jesus' humanity. So we need to hear the command, but we also need to see how the Apostle Paul roots this command in both Jesus' divinity and in His humanity. So, what do we see first about this command? What is the command? Here in verse 5, have this mind 
among yourselves or in you or in your midst. Have this mind or have this perspective is maybe a a good way to think about what the Apostle Paul is saying here. This is an important word for him throughout Philippians. Back up in verse 2 that we read just a moment ago, when he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. There's that, it's that same idea twice. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, where he talks about his attitude about them. It is right for me to feel this way about you all or have this perspective about you, this perspective of affection, of appreciation because of our relationship. Other places, Paul writes using this word because one of the key things that he is striving to do is he is striving to help these readers to have a new perspective, to have a different perspective on themselves, on their congregational life together, and what it is to follow Christ as the people of Christ. And so here he is appealing to them in a way that is central to the overall thrust of the letter. This is how he wants them to view their lives, to view themselves, to view their life together, and how they are to live together as Christ's people. Have this viewpoint. Well, have what viewpoint? Have what mind? That word, this, what, what's it referring to? Well, it, it actually looks both backwards and forwards. Have this mind, what mind? The mind, the perspective that I've just laid out for you in verses 2 through 4. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and so on and so forth. That's the perspective that the Apostle Paul wants them to adopt. But it's not just what he has just conveyed. The perspective that he wants them to adopt and grow into is the one that is going to be reflected for them in what he is about to write about the Lord Jesus and His perspective and his approach. He wants them to think like Christ. Where? Where is this perspective to be found? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This entire passage is filled with a lot of technicalities that over the years many scholars have spilled way more ink than seems necessary. So from time to time, I'll refer a little bit to those, but my goal is to to be as, as straightforward as possible. But here is one of those spots where we run into a point where there's some different perspectives, lots of ink and paper used, but really all to end at the same spot. And it's this. Where is this 
perspective to be found for the believers? Is it to be found in their being joined to Christ by faith? Being in Christ, united with Him, Romans 6. Well, in part, yes, it is. Because there is no adopting this perspective without being joined to Christ by faith. But the other side of the coin is, where is this perspective to be found? It is not just in union with Christ or being joined by faith to Christ, but this becomes, this should become our perspective, joined by faith to Christ because this perspective was found in Christ Himself. Is it found joined to Him by faith? Or is it found in Him, in His life, and in His ministry? Yes, it is. It's found in His life so that it is to become ours as we are joined to Him by trusting in Him, by walking with Him. This is what the Apostle Paul wants for his readers. He wants them to have a perspective on life, a perspective on who they are and who they are to be that was reflected in the ministry of Christ, that was reflected in the person of Christ, and is to be theirs as they walk with Him by faith. So in order to follow this command, in order to grow into this perspective, we have to see how the Apostle Paul lays it out as he looks both to Jesus' full divinity, fully God, but then also as he looks to Jesus' full humanity, fully man, fully God, fully man. Paul's point here is not to lay out an argument that Jesus was and is fully God, and that in the incarnation, and now he continues to also be fully man. He's not arguing for that. He's, he's simply assuming it, recognizing it, admitting it, and saying, fellow Christ followers, this has consequences for us, for who Jesus is and because of who He is and what He has done. So what are the consequences? What is the perspective of Christ? What does Paul say here about Jesus' divinity? Really, verses 6 and the first half of 7, Paul is rooting his perspective in this truth. Jesus, fully divine, fully God. Verse 6, who, that is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. All of this that Jesus or that Paul is writing about here centers around Jesus' identity as fully God. What? What does He say about Jesus? 
Notice verse 6, who was in the form of God. Now, when we read that, it sounds to us like what Paul is saying is that he looked like God. He had the shape of God, if you will. Remember what Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's not talking about some bodily form of God, right? But it sounds to our ears that Paul is saying something like that. But actually, that word that is translated here, form, is pointing to God's essential attributes. God's essential character. What it is about God that makes Him God. And he's saying that Jesus possessed and possesses these essential attributes. He has the characteristics of God. He is God. And this is where the Apostle John begins his gospel, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the same thing that Paul is appealing to here. And we know that for at least two reasons. How does he go on? He goes on to appeal to Jesus' equality with God. It's not as if Jesus looked kind of like maybe He could be God, but He really wasn't. No, He's saying Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, possesses equality with the Father. Fully God. But we also see this as... Paul goes on to write because he uses the same word again at the end of this section. What does he say? That Jesus took the form of a servant. Surely, Paul is not saying, well, Jesus looked like a servant, but He really wasn't. He just looked like He was kind of a servant. That's not at all what he is saying. Jesus Himself described His own ministry in terms of servitude. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so Paul here is making His consistent claim. Jesus took the form, took on what it means to be a servant. He was a servant. But before that, He has said, Jesus was and is fully God. And then he goes on to explain the consequence here of Jesus being fully God. Now, there are a host of consequences, right? For what it meant for Jesus and what it means for, be, for Jesus to be fully God. But Paul is pointing here to one specific consequence. And he states it first in a negative way. Basically saying, Jesus being fully God, it didn't mean this, or it didn't lead to this. But instead, Jesus being fully God led to this led to that instead. What, what do I mean? 
Well, notice. Notice for Paul, according to Paul. What it did not mean, and what it does not mean, for Jesus to be fully God. The first main verb as he describes what it is for Jesus to be fully God. Did not count, did not regard this equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't consider it. He didn't consider it what? He did not consider His divine status as something to be leveraged for His own personal advantage exclusively. I think this is exactly what Paul is saying without getting into the technicalities. He is saying that Jesus did not see His status as fully God and say, okay, I'm just here to look out for my own. Now, does Jesus deserve our absolute worship? Yes, He does. But in the incarnation, Jesus didn't come in a way that simply declared, bow down and worship Me. Moreover, when we look at how God reveals Himself throughout the Scriptures, is God to be worshipped absolutely? Absolutely He is. Is it okay for us to worship anyone or anything other than God Himself? No. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for you any graven images. You shall not bow down to them. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. What is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Chiefly, what are we to be about? The worship of God alone. This is what God desires. This is what God expects. And it is right for Him to do so because for Him to point us in anything in any other direction, for Him to tell us to worship anything other than Him, as John Piper has noted, would be idolatry. And so it is right for God to command and compel us to worship Him. But as we look at the biblical portrait, the biblical revelation of God, it is not merely summed up in this one command. To worship God. Yes, we are to worship Him. But God reveals more about His character throughout the Scriptures, does He not? What kind of God do we see in the Scriptures? We see a God who is giving. We see a gracious God, do we not? All the way back in creation, God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed. 
when they rebelled against Him, He gave them better clothing. He gave to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants these overwhelming promises. He gave the children of Israel all that they needed on their journey out of Egypt. Even after they rebelled against Him for 40 years, He did not cease to provide for their needs day after day after day. He gave His people instructions on how they were to live and how they were to worship Him as His people. Do you see that this is an act of grace on God's part that He tells them what it is that He expects of them and how it is that He wants them to worship Him? He gives them chance after chance after chance. Though they rebel against Him, He gave them the prophets over and over and over to call them to repentance. He gave His one and only Son to rescue us from our sin. Think of Jesus in His ministry pictured as giving and giving and giving and serving and serving and serving even when He wanted to go be by Himself and yet He saw the crowds and their needs. What did He do? He gave of Himself to them. As we alluded to earlier, how does Jesus describe His own coming? He sums it up in a message of giving. Yes, God is the Almighty God whom we must worship. And there is no one beside who deserves our worship. And Scripture reveals to us that the Almighty, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God is also a God who is rich in grace and in mercy. And His grace and His mercy is not contrary to His divinity. We would not know this apart from Scripture. But as Paul writes elsewhere, God can never lie. God can never do anything that is in conflict with who He is. He always acts consistently. And so, as He gives, as He extends grace, He is doing so because that's what it means to be God, to be gracious, to be kind, to be giving, to give to and serve His people. So that, as Paul looks at Jesus, and he says, in His full divinity. It did not mean that Jesus came or Jesus merely looked out for Himself. But because He is God, and in His full divinity, He gave Himself. How did He give Himself? He gave Himself by emptying Himself and taking on the form of a servant. Taking, in taking on the role of a servant, 
Jesus was not doing something contrary to His divine nature. Instead, in a way that we cannot fully comprehend, Jesus' becoming a servant was 100% consistent with His identity as the second person of the Godhead. His full divinity expressed itself in His coming to serve us. So that when Paul writes here, he didn't cling to for his own advantage, but instead he emptied himself. Again, there's a bit of a roadblock here. What does it mean for Jesus to empty himself? Does that mean he gave up something? It doesn't. It doesn't mean that Jesus gave up his divinity, because Paul goes on to explain what he means by Christ emptying himself. How did Christ empty himself? He did it by taking on the form of a servant. This is, if you will, subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. Did you know it's possible to add a number and actually go down in total? Two plus two equals what? Four. Five plus eight equals thirteen. Eight plus five equals 13. But what does 8 plus negative 5 equal? It equals 3. We can talk later if we need more of a math lesson, okay? But when you start adding negative numbers, the numbers start going down. And I, though it's an imperfect analogy, okay, it's, it's not perfect, I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. Christ emptied Himself not by losing something, but by taking on something lesser. By taking on servitude. He is worthy of our praise. But in His full divinity, He took on the form, what it meant to be a servant in order to graciously serve us. So that Jesus' taking on of the servant was fully consistent with, appropriate to, and right for Him to do as God. And though we can't really linger on this idea any longer, if you pause and think about what Paul is saying here, that Jesus' becoming a servant is one way in which His divine status expressed itself, this has the potential to blow our minds about what it means for God to be God. Because He is worthy of our worship. But He is also a serving, gracious God who gives and gives and gives 
for sinners like us. If it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it is what? It's a duck. Right? Paul is saying here, I don't mean to make light, but Paul is saying in a significant way that for Jesus to be God resulted in His taking the form of a servant. This is part of the consequence of His divinity. And then He goes on and He explores Jesus' humanity. Jesus being divine led to His being a servant. And what did it mean for Jesus to be a servant? And Paul explains this in the second half of verse 7 on through verse 8 by looking at Jesus' humanity. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In His humanity, what did Jesus do? Here, the emphasis is He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself to the point of death. That's the main action that Paul ascribes to Jesus in His humanity here. Is that all that Jesus did? No, it's not. But what He did could be summed up in this idea that He humbled Himself. How supremely is Jesus' humbling of Himself displayed in His humanity? Supremely, Jesus' lowering His humbling of Himself shows up in His obedience to the point of death. But elsewhere, Jesus explains that His humility, His humble obedience didn't just show up at the end of His life. But His entire earthly life was characterized by humble obedience to the will of the Father. Consider what the Apostle John writes in three spots. John 5.19. If you want to note these down, we're not going to turn. I'll just read them. But Perhaps you want to look at them later. John 5.19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Son does what the Father does. The Son submits to the pattern of the Father. But then He goes on just a few verses later in John 5.30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on My own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus' highest desire was to do the will of the Father in all of His life. Not just at the point of death, but from start to finish to submit to the will of the Father. So that... On the night before He was crucified, Jesus can pray in John 17, 4, I glorified You on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What God the Father gave Jesus to do, Jesus did in humble obedience. And here He is about to bring to full completion what the Father sent Him to do, and that was to rescue His people from their sins, to die for sinners like me and like you. So, as Paul celebrates the life-giving perspective of Jesus in these verses, he does so in two steps or in two movements, doesn't he? First, he appeals to Jesus' divine status, fully God. And he says that as fully God that led Jesus to come to serve us in taking on the role of a servant. And having taken on the role of a servant and becoming a human, then Jesus humbles Himself as a human being and becomes and is obedient all the way to death on a cross. The most vile, heinous form of death that in the Roman world was only reserved for the worst of sinners. For the worst of offenders. And yet, the sinless Son of God was obedient to the Father's plan that this was the means by which He would achieve the salvation of of sinners like you and me. This perspective that Jesus shows us alters or maybe clarifies is a better word what it means to be truly human. Here's what I mean. This perspective that Jesus demonstrates in His humble obedience, this perspective, one that views and moves in life in humble submission to the will of the Father. This is essential to what it means to be made in the image of God. In our fallenness, in our sinfulness, we revile against this kind of self-sacrifice. We revile against this kind of submission. But what Jesus shows us here is that to be truly human is to be submissive to the will of God who has created us. It is not the image of God in us that rebels against this picture of humbly submitting to God. It is our sin that presses against this. It is our sin, our sinful nature, indwelling sin that reviles this kind of life. This kind of perspective. 
Jesus shows us in His perfect divinity, in His perfect humanity, that this is how we are to live. That this is how His people are to live. And this is why it is such good news that one of the promises of the Gospel is not only that God rescues us from the penalty of our sin, but also that God rescues us from the consequences, the the ongoing impact of our sin. Or to put it in another way, that one of the promises that God commits to in rescuing us as we trust in Christ is that He will change us to make us more and more like the picture of Jesus that we have here. So that the Apostle Paul is telling the Philippians, we, we are to adopt the perspective to living that our Savior adopted. In His taking on humanity, being fully God and fully man, and in His perfect obedience all the way to and through death. This is what it means to be truly human. This is what it means to be Christ-like. And so, Philippians, this is the perspective that you are to have in your life. And we, Reynoldsburg Baptist Church, this is the perspective that we are to have about ourselves. To follow Jesus means to follow Him in humble obedience to the will of the Father. And that is the perspective that by His grace, God works out in the people of Christ as they strive to follow Christ. So that what does it look like What does it look like to have this perspective? What does it look like to have this kind of servant-hearted, humble obedience approach to life? Well, one way that it shows up is by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves, than ourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before You once more, You are worthy of all the worship of all of our hearts 
for all of the days that we live. But Father, thank You that Your Word shows it confronts us with the reality that left to ourselves, we do not revere You. We do not worship You. We do not honor You. We do not humbly submit to You as we ought. And so, Father, Your Word also shows us another side to Your character, another aspect of Your character. That You know our frame. That You remember that we are dust. That You know that we are sinners. That You know that we cannot rescue ourselves. That You you know that we are desperately in need not only of Your sovereign providential care for our material needs, but even more so, Father, we are sinners desperately in need of the rescue from our sin that can only come by the way that You have provided. And... To Your glorious praise, Father, You have provided it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray today that if there's anyone here who does not know saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that they would even now cry out to Him. We pray, Father, that they would seek someone out. Conversation with me or someone else after the service. This week, Father, we pray that hearts would not be hardened to the glorious news of a Savior who has taken on the qualities of a servant, becoming fully human, retaining His full divinity, so that He was obedient to the point of death. Death on the cross by which You were pleased in Your Son to purchase forgiveness for sinners. Father, we pray that those of us who are striving to follow Christ, Father, we pray that You would see how it is that You would have us grow in our congregational life, in our daily lives, in our daily responsibilities as spouses, as parents, as friends, as grandparents, as neighbors, as co-workers, as citizens in this life. Help us to see, Father, how we might grow in living out the life of humble submission to You that our Lord Jesus demonstrated for us in the obedience of His life as He lived and moved on this earth. Father, we thank You and praise You for the purchase of salvation that Christ has made by His death. Father, we thank You for the example of His life. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Spirit that enables us to follow Him Trusting Him and obeying Him. Taking up our cross and following as His people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.